Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. We're discussing this week the consequences of the UK's uh, historic vote, I think we can say, to uh, leave the EU. And to discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined today by uh, John Kay, the uh, writer, columnist, and uh, one of our leading business uh, economists. John, I've known you for many years. I'd be very interested to get your initial reaction to the uh, referendum result. Was it a surprise to you, as it seems to be a surprise to many others? I'm not sure why it was such, such, such a surprise, because um, in the polling evidence, other evidence we had was consistently that it was a pretty close thing. So I didn't altogether share, share the surprise. I uh, stayed up for this particular result, which actually I didn't do for the Scottish referendum, the, the Scottish referendum, because I felt pretty sure the way the Scottish referendum would go. And I wasn't so sure about this one. And sadly, I was able to go to sleep fairly early in the morning because it had by then become pretty clear what the result was going to be. So, in that sense, it wasn't such a surprise. I think people were surprised, people in uh, finance and um, what one might call the kind of educated metropolitan elite, because uh, they mostly didn't support it and didn't get the sense that other people did. In that, in the, in that respect, there was an element of replay of the Scottish story, because I realised that... Uh, until the last couple of weeks of that particular campaign, people down south here in London did not realise that the Scottish referendum was, was serious, that it was by no means a foregone conclusion. How would you interpret the results in a kind of broader context? We've heard lots of uh, explanations from all uh, sorts of pundits. Um, one popular explanation being that um, what we saw was um, a very clear vote by uh, if you like, Council House Britain to come out and vote against something to make a, uh, was it a protest or was it something more considered than that? I'm not sure it was more considered than that, but it was uh, in, in a way deeper than that. You know, it's not just a protest. It's an expression of uh, distaste for a political system that is uh, seen as, as not having served people very well. And I think there are uh, quite strong reasons for that. I've finished a lot of talks I've given on the financial crisis since 2008 by saying that we have this great unfocused public discontent and unless it could be effectively channeled by democratic politicians we would have all sorts of crazy people from political extremes exploiting it. And I think that is all a lot closer than um, even I feared it was. And this result is, in a sense, a manifestation of that. But equally, Corbyn's presence as leader of the Labour Party, Trump's emergence as Republican candidate in the US, and the votes that have been going for um, you know, Podemos and Syriza and other parties across Europe is an indication of... Um, uh, how this is a general trend and not just a British phenomenon. In that sense, this was not just about Europe or even at all about Europe. It was about uh, the UK political system, uh, but also as a subtext of uh, or a subcomponent of uh, a wider political problem. I think that's absolutely right. It, it wasn't much about Europe. And that's evidenced by the polls that have successively over several years shown that... Uh, uh, 
Europe is not much, or the European Union is not much liked in the UK, but people don't feel that strongly about it. It was a uh, linkage with a political, a sense of political failure uh, that has uh, made it a, uh, that produced a result. And that also means, I think, that we should have much wider concern than simply about the results of Brexit. The truth in my view is that if the will were there, we could actually negotiate deals with the EU, which would mean that nothing very much would really change. But actually, the, the collapse of faith in traditional politics is likely to have uh, much wider implications than that. And potentially, looking ahead, we can see certainly the breakup of the Labour Party and possibly the breakup of the Conservative Party as well. I rather take the view that we we may be moving into an era in which that traditional political structure doesn't make much sense. Indeed, we may have been in such an era for a decade or two. So, uh, in that broad sense, this is, uh, as these things always are, I suppose, both uh, an opportunity and a threat. Uh, we have to, uh, if, you, if you're right about those uh, causes, we need to find ways to uh, address them both politically and, uh, and of course, uh, within the economic uh, broader context. Yes, and I think that's absolutely right. We might see the threat, really, of a collapse of a traditional political system and opportunities for uh, wild men, perhaps wild women as well, since women seem to be emerging <laughs> rather well out of uh, all these developments. People from all sides of the political spectrum to emerge. On the other hand, another way of doing it is to think that we might be moving into a world with either new centre groupings or a more fragmented party structure in which there is actually more requirement to achieve consensus to govern effectively. And both of these would seem to me positive developments. In the in the short term, though, we have the issue, do you think that this these kind of issues are ones that the uh, members of the Conservative Party are going to be uh, considering uh, in depth as they decide who's going to become the next leader and the next uh, Prime Minister? Uh, I, I, I doubt if they're, they're going to be considering these in depth. And I suspect the main issue in the Conservative election campaign, whoever the two final candidates turn out to be, uh, will be a strength of enthusiasm for the, the Brexit option, which is uh, probably rather greater in the Conservative Party in the country than it is either at Westminster or probably in the country as a whole. I think I've seen uh, data that suggests that the Tory party uh, voted roughly two to one in favour of Brexit, so uh, I would think that might be right. We obviously have to discuss the uh, economic impact a little bit. Um, you obviously would have uh, read and reviewed all the many um, uh, attempts to uh, either to uh, determine or to quantify what the economic impact of Brexit will be. Uh, how do you um, how do you assess the situation in that context? In thinking hard about uh, writing my next book about bogus quantification in, <laughs> and and economics and everywhere else, and I think the figures that were bandied about on both sides during the campaign were pretty good examples of that. I think one pretty good general rule is that the economic impact of political events tends to be exaggerated by both sides. 
And I think that is true here. And plainly, however, the main issues and the main disadvantages to the British economy, and I think they're both disadvantages, are the, the period of uncertainty which we're now going to go through politically and economically for several years. And the, the major issue being the disincentive this gives to inward investment of various kinds. I suppose also, though, just to make one other broad point before coming back to that in a bit more detail, I mean, it's obviously in a way easier to quantify the short-term negative effects than it is to uh, assess the longer-term impact because there are so many imponderables involved in the latter. We don't know what kind of uh, economic policy we're going to be pursuing. We don't know um, what kind of trade agreement we will have with Europe uh, and so on and so forth. Would you Would you agree with that? Right. I don't think it's very quantifiable in either short or long, long run, to be honest. Uh, but you're right, we don't know. I, I'm assuming but we will come out of this in the end with a trade deal which doesn't look massively different from the kind of arrangements we have now. In that case, of course, one might ask what the, all this debate was about, uh, but my prognostications are very much based around that assumption. Because that is essentially in the interests of, of both sides to this... Uh, so plainly in the interests of both sides, yes. So we need to look through the kind of uh, the public posturing and, and so on. Indeed, if we could look beyond the posturing and the, the politics, both sides have quite a strong interest in pretending that nothing very much has really happened. Indeed, indeed. But just picking up the point about the, the inward investment, I mean, obviously, at the moment, it's uh, we are a country which has uh, a very large uh, current account deficit has a very low savings rate, and we are therefore quite uh, dependent on inward investment. So if that is going to be affected, that's going to have some uh, some consequences, is it not? Yes, although of course a lot of that financing of deficit is um, undertaken through the financial sector rather than what I think is the, the biggest issue. I'm less worried about effects on portfolio investment. I suspect the effects on portfolio investment will not be very large. It's the plants and offices that people set up in the UK because it gives them easy access to the EU as well as being an English-speaking country that is relatively easy to navigate. That's the great advantage that Britain has had uh, internationally as part of the EU. And it's the one that, certainly for the moment, anyone who's thinking of the kind of multinational companies which have been behind a lot of that activity will at any rate be putting their plans on hold until they see what the outcome of all this turns out to be. And what do you think is going to happen in that context? Uh, one relevant factor is what happens to sterling. The pound obviously has fallen by what some might think was a relatively modest margin, but it has fallen. And um, where do you think it goes from here? Do you think we are, uh, that's, we've seen the most of that, the bulk of that now? I think we probably have. I might expect we're going to get volatility, if only because of the uncertainty we're just describing. And we may, of course, get very bad results politically in the sense that uh, there's a high prospect now of a period of considerable instability uh, in political terms. And if that's what happens, people are not going to be easy buyers of sterling. People just sitting on their hands to wait and see, which for people making big business decisions must be the sensible course now. Uh, but that kind of environment um, 
potentially gives rise to very considerable volatility. And of course, from an investment perspective, if you can sit back and take a detached view, volatility is essentially a patient investor's friend. But it's uh, that's difficult to feel comfortable with. I mean, it is like one of the ironies, of course, of this is that so far I was looking at the figures for the performance of um, you know the average balanced portfolio in uh, in a private client uh, sector. They've just had their best month uh, since uh, January twenty thirteen. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> because of sterling, because of the the market holding up, the, the FTSE holding up, and, and obviously gilts uh, uh, gilts going up in value as well. Just perhaps before we it's quite surprising unless you get to the stage of thinking that through that uh, as far as equity investment is concerned uh, this this has been good news not bad news because it's mainly driven by the form of value of sterling indeed so to the point that in local currency terms ours has been one of the strongest performing markets in the world is not surprising yeah exactly um of course, another issue behind all this is um, when multinational companies are considering where to invest is the question of what actually is going to happen to the EU itself. Now, I think you, um, I think you, you're well known for having expressed the view that the euro is not necessarily uh, God's gift to economic uh, mankind in Europe. What do you think is going to happen to the EU now? Can you make a guess of that? Uh, I think that's very hard to guess. I'm, uh, I think the probability continues to be, as it always has been, that the Euro project ends in tears. Um, as I think you know, Jonathan, I'm, I'm basic. My basic instincts are strongly pro-EU. I, yep. uh, I, I want, I want free trade. I'm not very interested in old-fashioned conceptions of sovereignty, but I think the Euros, absolutely on the scale on which the project was set up, was just a step too far, and the danger has been and continues to be that that step too far destroys the whole project or damages it irretrievably, and I think that is probably where we are, and a problem we've compounded by various mistakes, of which the largest is, I think, uh, supporting Europe's zombie banks rather than facing up to the, the problems at the centre of Europe's financial system. Yes, I think, um, I mean, that's very clear. I think you've made that point many times, that, and others have too, that Europe has failed to, uh, to take the steps that it needs to do to shore up its banking system, whereas others have done better. I and that the Greek and Spanish... Italian problem was as much a problem of failures in French and German banks as it was a weakness of carrying certain side of Europe. Because they'd overlent and, and lent unwisely and were committed to uh, effectively uh, very poor uh, loan practices. Yeah. Another concern people have expressed recently, they look at the share price of Deutsche Bank uh, and they worry about the uh, possibility of that problem morphing into some kind of uh, repeated financial crisis or a new a new financial crisis, um, something which I know you've said recently in one of your books, uh, you think is still a real possibility. Yes, the Deutsche Bank is, in essence, a very large hedge fund supported by a modest-sized German retail bank and the German taxpayer. And that's not a good idea. And something I think the German taxpayer would not like if he or she found out about it, which they will one day. There are a lot of things that the German taxpayer 
would not like if they found out about it. So does that make you concerned about the outcome of the uh, German and lesser extent French elections next year? Obviously, Brexit has has uh, thrown a spanner into into the works of for both the leaders of uh, those countries. Um, I mean, do you think, are you one of those who thinks that Germany might one day leave the EU or might leave the euro rather? Sorry, not the EU, the euro. And it's one way of resolving it for Germany and the Northern European group with which it's naturally linked themselves to take themselves out of the euro. But what's what's difficult about this is the euro project has kept going um, as long as it has because of the strength of political will in Europe to keep it going. And uh, I think people in Britain have consistently underestimated the strength of that will. And that is absolutely still there. So politics can defy economic realities for a very long time. I don't think it can indefinitely, but it can do it for a long time. And the evidence is already before us that it has. As you say, though, you're a believer in, 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 the, Europe, in, in the EU, or at least in the concept of Europe as, a, as, a, as an entity which we should be you know, part of and supporting. But what kind of uh, changes would you make to the EU structure to, to make it more of the uh, kind of uh, organisation that you'd like it to be? I, I think the key for us all to realise is when which the nature of modern government of change has changed. Um, Max Weber, the 19th century German sociologist, famously expressed the role of the state as being to have a monopoly of internal and external coercion, you know, to, to run an army and maintain um, internal security. Now, that's really a very unimportant part of what modern government does. Your very limited need for coercion in a democratic society, and frankly, as a result of bitter experience, the idea that you make yourself rich by going and beating up foreigners is something modern Europeans are, are no longer very interested in. What for me this project is and should be about is saying that we need and should have multiple levels of government to deal with the many functions of the modern state. And what the modern state does is it deals with health and education and social security and transport infrastructure and so on. And you want different levels of government doing different bits of these things. And the EU, for me, is a project in which you have different governments, a London government, a Scottish government, a UK government, a German government, an EU entity, all learning to, to rub along with each other. And it's that rethinking of the nature of power and states, which for me is the, is the real European project. I was... I was very struck a few years ago reading a comment by Philip Bobbitt, the American political theorist, who explains that uh, it describes as a failure of imagination, really, for people in Brussels to see the object of European Union as being the, the creation of a federal state. And that people in Europe are not going to subscribe to federal state and it's not a feasible or desirable ambition but the, the desire on the part of many people in the sort of European elite to make that happen is something which has I think done I think it's done damage to the development of the European Union it's certainly done damage to the popularity and legitimacy of the European Union. And within that framework is immigration 
which has obviously been one of the issues here, is that something that should be uh, left in the hands of national governments, or is it actually something which is uh, necessarily uh, required, uh, as the EU uh, would, would have it, to enable free trade? I, I don't think it's necessarily required to, to maintain free trade. That says, I think the immigration that um, uh, concerns people is not primarily uh, intra-EU immigration, but um, people are reluctant to spell out what their concerns about immigration actually are. And of course, a lot of them are um, are rather are based largely on ignorance. I think people, we, we can see from polls, the more experienced people have of immigration in the main, the more accepting they are of it. Absolutely. And as an economist, you would also, uh, I assume, wholeheartedly share the view that uh, economic migration certainly is you know one of the one of the keys to maintaining a uh, a productive economy well some economic migration yes but I, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not particularly gung-ho for that for that phenomenon and if we look at migration statistics which people don't actually do very much in this debate uh, we notice what we had with, uh, as it were, traditional EU before accession from Eastern Europe uh, was a relatively modest movement of, you know, highly educated people across, across, uh, even across Europe. We would have, you know, French bankers and German doctors coming in, if what were in aggregate small numbers, uh, to the UK. We then got an influx of lower skilled people from Eastern Europe after accession, which again is still not huge numbers in the overall scheme of things. But interestingly, is very much people who are um, in employment, moderately skilled, the archetype of a Polish plumber. Yes. And it is actually interesting that EU migrants, uh, a higher proportion of them are in work than UK residents are in work. And I think that's not just because the migrants have put Brits out of job. It's because, of, it's because of the kind of people they are. They come here to work and make money. And to that extent, they uh, they do actually add to the economic welfare of, of the nation, to that extent. Yes, they do. Now, that, that's not a reason for not worrying about where concentrations of immigrants may create tensions or taking a view of overall numbers. I think we probably should. So I think it's simply not true to say that free trade in goods and services requires free movement of people. It's sensible, I think, to, to take an overall view of free movement of people rather than simply regard it as a principle. Uh, but in aggregate, I think migration at moderate levels is, is beneficial. And historically, of course, it has been massively beneficial if one takes a view of a centuries rather than decades, the amounts by which it's enriched the countries that have, uh, have received it is, is very striking. Well, I think we're coming close to the end of our, of our time, John, but I'd like to finish, if I may, it's been very, uh, your perspective has been very interesting so far. Um, I just wonder whether you think that uh, at the end of all this, um, whether you are essentially optimistic or pessimistic about the consequences of Brexit, taking into account all these many wider factors that you've uh, discussed? I'm pessimistic, but not primarily because of Brexit. 
I'm pessimistic because of uh, wider political developments. I think we're in danger of seeing the consensus about liberal democracy and likely regulated capitalism, which has been all around the Western world since 1990. We're in danger of seeing that consensus breaking down. And the Brexit vote is a manifestation of that. It's not the Brexit vote itself that is the cause of the problem. It's a manif manifestation of much wider and more disturbing phenomenon. Well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate very much appreciate your time and your thoughts on this. Um, uh, I dare say we'll um, hope we'll come back and uh, uh, talk to you again uh, in, the, pleasure, John. in the near term and see whether how these things have panned out in, in reality. But for the meantime, many thanks indeed. Mm -hmm.